It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I think I'm going to start today by thanking people for listening because I got the numbers for 2021. And without getting into specifics, so we are in the millions of downloads, uh, 25% increase in growth for Media Buzz Meter. December was our most popular month, and it wasn't a particularly newsworthy month. So I think more and more people are tuning in, and I appreciate that. It makes me want to work even harder to bring you whatever it is that we do here. Um, it seems like every time I turn on the television set, uh, I'm seeing somebody, some media person saying, hey, by the way, I've got COVID. You know, Whoopi Goldberg announced that she had tested positive. The View is now up in boxes, meaning everybody's either in a different studio or at home. Jimmy Fallon uh, says he's got it. Geraldo Rivera during an episode of The Five. Also, everybody's in different boxes saying, hey, by the way, you know, this isn't any fun, but I've got it. Uh, Seth Meyers had to cancel his NBC show for the week after contracting COVID-19. And then there are all the political people, uh, the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, also testing positive. Meanwhile, I am just absolutely flabbergasted at the magnitude of a disaster on I-95 in Virginia where so many people were stranded for so many hours and the state just completely and totally mishandled this. I mean, I mentioned yesterday that uh, NBC or MSNBC reporter Josh Lederman was doing live shots from his car with his dog. Senator Tim Kaine uh, said he spent 27 hours stuck on the road trying to get to his job in the Capitol. And you know, somebody pointed out, you know, one minute you're the vice presidential nominee. The next minute you're just another guy freezing your butt off in a car. And the, the thing is... This is not about inconvenience. This is dangerous stuff. There are babies in some of these cars, elderly people in some of these cars, people with uh, conditions in some of these cars. You can't keep the heat on all the time because you run out of gas. Most people didn't have food. There were occasional heartwarming stories about a bakery truck giving out bread to the drivers who were stuck around that. But where was the National Guard? Where was... Any emergency response by the Commonwealth of Virginia, I don't, the excuses don't cut it. This was an absolute genuine emergency. Oh, it takes too long to, uh, to uh, mobilize the National Guard. Really? What's the National Guard for? What would you do if, like, there was an invasion or, um, you know, an earthquake or a tsunami? I, I, I just, you know, somebody's got to be held accountable for this. And I just, my heart goes out to all those people. And meanwhile, there was also people on an Amtrak train that left Georgia at midnight. By the time it got to Virginia, it was stuck. Um, trip usually takes 14 hours, but this time it was, uh, I don't know, 20 plus hours. Uh, by, by yesterday morning, passengers said that the, the, they had no food on the train, no functioning toilets, no information from Amtrak as to what would happen. Uh, unacceptable. I mean, Obviously, you can't, you know, if there's an overturned tractor trailer on the highway or if there was, I think, trees maybe blocking the Amtrak. But you've got to have some emergency response capability. On a somewhat lighter note, uh, you might have been reading about Andy Cohn, uh, who I interviewed once, who's, you know, actually a pretty smart guy. Uh, but New Year's Eve, you know, he did the CNN special thing with Anderson Cooper. And let's just say he was somewhat inebriated. So he went off on this rant about what a terrible mayor Bill de Blasio was. His last day was New Year's Eve. 
And now, on his uh, Sirius XM show, he says, well, the only thing I really regret is that I went after uh, Ryan Seacrest. And uh, he said, you know, it was kind of taken out of context. Uh, Cohen also uh, addressed his uh, conduct, shall we say, saying he'd been a bit overserved in the alcohol department. Uh, CNN knocking down rumors that they're not going to use him on future New Year's Eve. But I don't know. When you have people just... It's kind of, I was going to say, it's the equivalent of drinking and driving, drinking and broadcasting, broadcasting while drunk. Nothing good can come of it, uh, except maybe good ratings. And a quick uh, food note here, uh, KFC restaurants, I mean, the original Kentucky Fried Chicken is now going to add to its menus for at least a limited time, a plant-based chicken produced by Beyond Meat. I've said in the past now, the Beyond Burgers are taste remarkably like the real thing. Um, and this comes after years of testing. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think anyone outside of maybe a few test markets have tasted the plant-based chicken, but what if it catches on? You know, the people, family that wants to go have fried chicken at KFC can do that if it's got one vegetarian member who wants something else, or maybe people just want to, you know, reduce the, eat more healthy. So that's the news on that front. All right, number one, we'll come back to COVID. And I have been mentioning, I mentioned this on the air last Sunday, and I've been mentioning on the podcast, there is this debate about counting, by which I mean, you know, we had the million-plus cases uh, the other day. Now, I think yesterday it was 880,000. I mean, just off the friggin' charts. Uh, And at the same time, we all know now that these are undercounts because a whole lot of people, despite the severe shortage of at-home tests are being tested at home. And, and there's no, they're not obligated to report that. There's mostly no way for authorities to know. So the actual number is not a million. I mean, who knows? Is it a million and a half? It, is it, are there people who are undiagnosed? So the argument is uh, maybe we should just stop counting because it doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, and that, therefore, the really important statistics right now are hospitalizations and deaths. And so even though you have the raw number of new cases, and again, this is just the reported cases, increasing by more than 250% over the last two weeks, you have the number of deaths actually going down by about 3% during that same time period. Why? Because many of the people who are getting Omicron are vaccinated. They're getting mild cases. It's only unvaccinated people, and there are still a lot of them in this country who are in danger of having a more serious bout and perhaps um, being hospitalized and perhaps dying. Um, And so I understand the intellectual argument. Personally, I think that even as a very rough gauge, it helps to know the trend of the total number of cases, even if we know it's a a lowball estimate. Uh, But Jim Garrity in National Review is kind of dunking, I guess he's been making this argument for some time, he's kind of dunking on the Atlantic saying, if you're worried about COVID-19, there's an excellent chance that at least once over the past two years, you've even read an article or someone has sent you an article about the pandemic from the Atlantic. Day after day, week after week, he says, uh, the Atlantic offers at least one article or personal essay that warns you that as bad as things may seem, they're actually much worse and will probably get worse, even worse tomorrow. Uh, He throws out some headlines. We know enough about Omicron to know we're in trouble. COVID is not endemic yet and may not be for a long time. You can get COVID and the flu at the same time. And then he points to 
a piece that ran, I guess, yesterday um, by a doctor named Benjamin Mazur. The headline was, Stop Wasting COVID Test People. And in the Atlantic piece, he says, many of those queuing up for tests this week have little choice because they may need to prove a negative result for travel or school or access to, you know, certain restaurants or other public venues. But beyond that, you know, just getting it before or after a family gathering, it's optional. And this guy says it might seem reckless to suggest that people undergo less surveillance. The standard expert take is that the opposite. We should all screen ourselves as often as possible. But this guy goes on to say everyone should do what they can to free up testing resources for those with symptoms, not those without symptoms. We should allocate tests based on underlying risks with the unvaccinated, he says, you know, being in the greatest danger of being hospitalized or dying from the virus. Now, I don't completely agree with that, but I think Garrity is being a little bit unfair to the Atlantic because I have quoted many of these same stories, and it is true. There's been a lot of pandemic coverage in the Atlantic, but they have also run stories on the other side of the argument. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I made a point, and I I did this on, on Fox News as well, of saying that the Atlantic had run two pieces, one of which was from a guy in rural Michigan who said, you know, out here, you know, we're treating the pandemic as if it's over. People aren't even talking about it or wearing masks. And that was before the Omicron numbers got crazy, so maybe that changed. And then there was a piece about Generation Z, uh, not really, you know, bothering to get tested, not really bothering to get vaccines in some cases, and just kind of acting like it's over. So I don't think the Atlantic's coverage has been all one-sided. But Garrity does make a point that I have made, um, and maybe he's made before, which is if you're President Biden and you suddenly, you know, you're, you can't, you know, you were elected to get this pandemic under control and the headlines are all about a million cases, 800,000 cases, whatever, it kind of would be convenient for you, politically speaking, to say, you know what, we really shouldn't focus on the total number. We should just focus on the serious outcomes. Um, because that's certainly when Donald Trump was president, you know, and, and we were all, you know, we were, we couldn't imagine there would be 100,000 American deaths, let alone 200, 300, 400,000 in 2020. And then that kind of doubled in 2021, even in a year when we had the three vaccines available. Um, so I understand the substantive debate. There is a political aspect to this. We'll see how it plays out. Meanwhile, Washington Post has a piece about how Republican office holders are dealing with the question of boosters. You know, President Biden gave a speech yesterday. It didn't make a lot of news because he kind of was in the White House saying the same old thing. Please, please, please get the booster. Please get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated. Uh, otherwise, he said, COVID-19 should be a concern for you if you're vaccinated, but it shouldn't be. you shouldn't be alarmed about it. If you are not vaccinated, the president said, then you, there is cause for alarm. But because he tends to say the same things again and again without any action to go with it, and occasionally he's taking small steps, um, it doesn't really, once he's off the air, then people don't keep talking about it. So in this Washington Post piece, the Republican governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, uh, said last week, he has no plans to get a booster shot. I'm perfectly healthy, he told the reporter. Uh, a few days after that, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee using their Twitter account to, to say, if the booster shots work, why don't they work? Well, again, that's just a falsehood. And the, the committee later deleted that tweet because nobody ever said or very few uninformed people said 
that if you got any shot, let alone a booster, you would never, ever, 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 ever get a breakthrough infection. What they said was you would be extremely unlikely to get a serious case, one that might require you to be hospitalized or have an even worse outcome. Uh, look, Donald Trump, you remember the appearance with O'Reilly and some part of the crowd booed when he said, yeah, I've got the booster, and he went on to pitch vaccines. Did the same thing in an interview with the Daily Wire. And yet, um, according to this Washington Post piece, there's a lack of unified messaging, to say the least, among um, many GOP office holders. I remember Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, was asked, uh, have you gotten the booster? And he said, uh, I got whatever I got. Then once talk about it, which means to me, probably got it. And doesn't want to say it because what? It's unpopular with the base, the base that loves Donald Trump, who says, hey, I got the booster and you should too. Um, governors, Democrats as well as Republicans, have sought to recalibrate Americans' ideas of what it means to be vaccinated. Booster shots increase protection against infection, hospitalization, and death. But it's pretty clear now, I'm sure you all know somebody, vaccinated people can still get COVID-19. But here's Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a more moderate Republican and somebody who got one of those breakthrough infections. Nobody should think of a booster as just a bonus or an extra dose. He's saying you should get it. But other Republican office holders are saying not so much. And this I just love. A president of France, Emmanuel Macron, says in an interview with La Parisienne, I really want to piss off the unvaccinated. And so we're going to continue doing that. He's bragging about that. What does he mean? He says, look, I'm not going to put people who refuse to get the shots in prison. I'm not going to vaccinate them by force. By the way, in France, about 75%, higher, much higher than the U.S., have been vaccinated. But there's still about 5 million French people who have not. So uh, the Macron government is pushing a bill through Parliament that will tighten the eligibility uh, for what's called a health pass, meaning if you, unless you have a negative test, Oh, you can't get a health pass anymore, even if you have a negative test. You've got to show that you're vaccinated. And without that, you can't go to restaurants, you can't go to cafes, you can't go to museums and other public spaces. I just love that. You will not be able to go to the cafe. And this will be very, very bad for you. <laughs> so, I mean, in France, that's got to be a very big deal. All right, the head of the uh, conservative party, Christian Jacob, said, this is unacceptable. I cannot support a bill whose only goal is to piss off the French, he said. So some French are pissed off, but they're really, uh, imagine if Joe Biden tried to do that here. Um, individual cities and, and states have done it, certainly individual cities, New York City being a prime example. All right, story number two has to do with January 6th, the anniversary of which is tomorrow. And I mentioned uh, on the podcast yesterday, I believe, uh, not sure, maybe it happened later in the day. In any event, in case you haven't heard, Donald Trump has canceled his plans to do a big media event tomorrow marking the anniversary of the Capitol riot. And he had a whole statement, which I'll read to you, basically blaming other folks. And when I saw that, I instantly said to myself, you know what, his advisors talked him out of it. There's no way that Donald Trump would give up this platform because he was going to get a lot of coverage for this. In fact, I envision kind of uh, a split-screen approach. You know, President Biden's going to give a speech. Uh, members of Congress will do whatever they do to mark 
um, the commemoration of one of the darkest days in our history. And then there will be Donald Trump, who, um, you know, continues to pound away about the big lie and the stolen election and all of that. And so even after thinking that, I then look at a Washington Post story this morning. Yep, there it is. Unnamed advisors to the president, people familiar with saying, you know, he would have gotten very, very, very bad press out of it. Look, there's a part of Trump. I say this knowing the guy for 35 years and having written about him as long as 35 years ago, who relished the idea of a bunch of reporters throwing hostile questions at him. He, he, he patented that. That was a, main, a major feature of his presidency. But this would have been pretty grim. I mean, he would have faced some pretty hostile questions, and he would have gave it right back, fake news, enemy people, and all that. But how does that help him? How does that help him? So here's what the former president had to say. In light of the total bias and dishonesty of the January 6th unselect committee of Democrats, two failed Republicans, that's Liz and uh, Kinzinger, and the fake news media, hey, what did we do? I am canceling the January 6th press conference at Mar-a-Lago on Thursday. And instead, we'll discuss many of those important topics at my rally on Saturday, January 15th. It's more than a week away in Arizona. It'll be a big crowd, exclamation point. What has become more and more obvious to all, all caps, is the lamestream media will not report the facts that Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol Sergeant-at-Arms denied requests for the D.C. National Guard or military to be present at the Capitol. Uh, I haven't seen any confirmed reporting about Pelosi. It is true, the Sergeant-at-Arms, I think, did not handle this well. Their emails and correspondence with the Department of Defense exist, but the media won't ask for this evidence or report the truth. Well, um, you know, what does Trump do? He needs to deflect. It's the Democrats, it's the lamestream media. Look, it was his decision to announce that he would have a news conference at Mar-a-Lago tomorrow, to mark the anniversary, and it was his decision to cancel it. If he wants to blame it on everybody else, that's fine. I think he came to understand that was not going to be a great day for him, and um, it would just be it would just kind of uh, electrify the coverage of whether or not Donald Trump incited that riot by urging his supporters to come to D.C. on January 6th. More information coming out about how he watched television, and it took hours for all the people who were texting Mark Meadows or going to him directly, trying to get him to speak out and say. People should go home. He finally did that, but he also said, we, we love you and all that. You know the story. But it kind of slides me as a segue into number three, which has to do with Sean Hannity, the House January 6th committee, which, by the way, is toying with the idea of having primetime hearings, which would tip, tick off all the primetime hosts, uh, and would mean you couldn't have like a six or seven hour hearing like you do during the day. You'd get bigger numbers of people watching. I don't know whether that'll turn out to be the case or not. Um, the House January 6th committee has asked for a voluntary cooperation from Sean Hannity uh, to talk to the panel as it tries to piece together what happened in the run-up and on the day of January 6th. Um, Hannity has not responded directly. His lawyer, Jay Sekulow, said yesterday the committee's request, quote, would raise serious constitutional issues, including First Amendment concerns regarding freedom of the press. And that's true. I mean, I think the committee could be going down a dangerous path if it decides that, oh, if you've got a subpoena Hannity, you know, uh, because look, you can't get away from the fact that Hannity is the 
one of the highest rated commentators and one of the most influential conservative commentators in the country, not only with his primetime Fox show, but with his syndicated radio show, that he is a big Trump supporter and bashes the Democrats all the time. So now a Democratic-controlled committee is going to try to subpoena him. Now, they didn't say they were going to do that, but that has been the case. Maybe they just want to at least get on the record the uh, request for voluntary cooperation. Now, with that came out some new texts. Now, you remember that Hannity on January 6th um, texted Meadows, you know, as did the two other Fox opinion hosts and said, you know, you got to get you got to get Trump to say something here. Um, his legacy is in danger. Or maybe not in those exact words. So here are some new texts that the committee released. And they show Hannity being concerned about what's going to happen. Um, December 31st, he texted Mark Meadows. This is a week before. Uh, we can't lose the entire White House Counsel's Office. I guess that's a reference to threatened resignations. I do not see January 6th happening the way he, Trump, is being told. After the 6th, he should announce will lead the nationwide effort to reform voting integrity. Go to Florida and watch Joe mess up daily. Stay engaged. When he speaks, people will listen. And he also texted Meadows on January 5th. This is the night before the riot. I'm very worried about the next 48 hours. So Sean Hannity was laying down a marker of being concerned about what was going to happen. Now, four days after the riot, this is January 10th, he texted both um, Meadows and Congressman Jim Jordan. Guys, we have a clear path to land the plane in nine days. He can't mention the election again, ever. I did not have a good call with him today. And worse, I'm not sure what is left to say or do. I don't like not knowing if it's truly understood. Ideas. So, privately at least, Sean Hannity is saying it's not a smart thing for Donald Trump, and here we are a year later, to be going after the rigged election storyline. Um, now, we don't know more of, of Sean's thinking, whether or not he, whether or not he agreed there were irregularities or not. He just was saying politically, this doesn't help him. I'm speaking then of a president who was soon to leave office. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. And now, number four. Um, I did this last night in a piece for Special Report. Part of my column today on foxnews.com is about big tech versus conservatives. The other part is about the Elizabeth Holmes verdict uh, and what a uh, how her conviction really shows how badly the tech press in particular and the mainstream media in general erred in lionizing her over something that turned out to now be in the eyes of a jury a fraud. You've heard me talk about that, but the column kind of brings it all together. Uh, but some of the uh, actions here. So we have Marjorie Taylor Greene being permanently banned by Twitter, only suspended for 24 hours by Facebook, after five violations, four previous suspensions. And what she did, if you're not up on this, the Republican congresswoman from Georgia over the weekend tweeted that there are extremely high amounts of COVID vaccine deaths, and that is simply not true. Uh, it is simply uh, the case that there's been very rare adverse reactions, let alone deaths, from getting the COVID vaccines. And so here I see pressure on Twitter and other social media giants to rid their sites of outright falsehoods and scare language. 
And on the other hand, it often seems that they are going after people on the Republican or the conservative side. So Marjorie Taylor Greene is already fundraising on the, off the Twitter ban. She's called Twitter an enemy to America. Uh, Donald Trump came out uh, and said, uh, you know, Twitter is a danger to democracy. Trump, of course, suing both Twitter and Facebook for banning him. Um, and I get that they would make political hay out of this. But on the other hand, I don't know that I can blame Twitter for taking action against somebody who was repeatedly warned. And I'm starting to think maybe knew she'd be banned and maybe thought that would be good for her to crusade against. Now, in addition, though, you have these other cases where um, there's one case having nothing to do with COVID where Facebook um, barred the account of a conservative columnist named Bethany Mandel, who also is a conservative book publisher. And she has published children's books that seem to be laudatory takes on the lives of Ronald Reagan, Thomas Sowell, and Amy Coney Barrett. And Fox Business did a story on this where she said she couldn't figure out. It was something about the vague language about disruptive content or it just wasn't explained. It wasn't clear. What would be wrong? This is nothing about misinformation. It seemed to be purely partisan. Why would Mark Zuckerberg's company say that she can't put Facebook ads to publicize these books? It just didn't make any sense whatsoever. So after that story uh, aired, a Facebook spokesman went on Twitter, and I reached out to the spokesman. He said, we stand by what we said, and said, this should not have happened. It was a mistake, and we have rectified it, and we've restored the account. But it often seems that these mistakes go in one direction against conservatives. So when Facebook does that, somebody pulls the trigger, and then they've got to come out, and it's embarrassing, and say, hey, you know what? We were wrong. There really was no reason uh, to take any kind of uh, retaliatory action against this conservative columnist and book publisher. It just fuels the feeling that so many on the right have that, there is, uh, that, that conservatives are targeted. And then, so, you know, you've got two different... Um, areas colliding. One is, you know, truly it's not helpful to American political discourse that people saying you can die from the vaccines or any of that stuff. And on the other hand, you've got too many, you know, these are left-leaning companies, Facebook, Twitter, everybody knows that. They don't even deny it. And when they make these kind of, quote, mistakes, I really think that they wanted to do it. They got caught, they got called out, and they backed off. But even if it was an honest mistake, it always seems to be that conservatives or Republicans, not liberals or Democrats, are the ones on the receiving end. And that does, undermines their credibility and does not help. Story number five. Now, this is kind of a journalistic insider thing. But Ben Smith, who um, had been the editor of BuzzFeed News, became a New York Times media columnist um, about two years ago. I know him. I think he wrote some very, very good columns. Very, very good reported columns, uh, including that one he did about Carlos Watson and uh, his company, which is now struggling to survive and all the falsehoods involved uh, in that company. Um, but he's an entrepreneur and he's leaving the New York Times and he's leaving the New York Times to join forces with another guy named Justin Smith, no relation, uh, well-known guy on the management side of business, had worked for Bloomberg. Bloomberg News and Mike Bloomberg. And they are going to start 
according to the news stories, a global news service. And they had some sort of highfalutin thing about there were 200 million English-speaking people around the world and they're not being served. And we want to just have straight journalists and, and deliver all this news to an international audience. And hey, it sounds great. But what is it? Uh, first of all, I have to say, you know, Ben Smith, who had left Politico to go to BuzzFeed, I'm sure he made a fair amount of money there. I mean, obviously, they're being well compensated or have a lot of money behind them to launch this kind of thing, which is going to be a very expensive proposition. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Ben Smith seems a chance to make some money. After a couple of years writing a newspaper column, that's fine. But he got interviewed, he did a bunch of interviews, and he just was un either unable or unwilling to say what it is. So from the New Yorker interview with Ben Smith, he says, look, there's an opportunity uh, to reach a new audience and deliver stories in new ways, to align ourselves with great journalists in a way that can be hard for legacy institutions. Um, we're coming out of a movement moment in which the news business wrapped itself around social media for better or worse. Uh, I think sometimes a lot of news is stuck in a sort of a feedback loop. But there's a big audience... I learned this to some degree at the Times. The stories that hit hardest are actually the ones that get the truth of a complex, real story. Well, that's admirable. So the reporter says to Smith, can you give me an example of what that means? Uh, again, I don't want to go into comparing my imaginary product to somebody else's. You know what I mean? I haven't started yet. Would it be like a subscriber-based, paywall kind of thing? Again, I think it's just premature to talk about uh, and is it more like a newspaper or more like a magazine? Is it more like a newspaper? Come on, Ben Smith says. So it's kind of like vaporware at this point. I mean, I'm sure they have some vision. And I'm not saying it can't succeed, but, you know, it's always been hard. Um, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, I mean, this always was true of broadcast network news that they cut back a lot of their foreign bureaus because, you know, they looked at the numbers and Americans, except in case of a war or natural disaster or something especially fascinating, just simply weren't that interested in foreign news. Uh, maybe something like COVID changes that too. In other words, if it has some effect on Americans or the American troops involved or, you know, there's a huge earthquake or something like that. And I think that even cable networks like CNN used to do a lot of international coverage, just do a hell of a lot less. Because, you know, when you have domestic news, and particularly political domestic news, and particularly opinionated political domestic news on the cable news channels, and you have people flocking to left or right, what most agrees with them, what most confirms their opinions, that's how you put up the numbers. And when you have, you know, perfectly fair, dutiful reports about some kind of reform effort in Europe, or uh, poverty in Africa, you name it, it doesn't exactly set the ratings numbers on fire. And the news business is, after all, a business. So look, if Ben Smith and Justin Smith can find some kind of global, I mean, you know, we do have uh, outfits like the BBC, but if they can find form some kind of global digital network that really can pull in significant numbers, if they can make money at it, and they can bring um, a more internationally-minded approach based on journalism and not just bloviation, more power to them. I think that's great. I don't think this thing's going to launch for at least a year. Um, but for the moment, I've got to be a reporter and be skeptical. But anything that creates jobs in journalism at a time when so much of the news business is shrinking, especially newspapers, I think is a good thing. Well, once again, i got to thank everyone out there for listening because our numbers have been really good. Uh, I don't have a staff to do this. I just, you know, 
gather up everything I can, I think about it, and I share it with you. Unvarnished, sometimes with a few stumbles, no commercial breaks. Uh, I guess you do get commercials if you, um, if you, uh, you can pay a couple of bucks extra for this. But I, I meant in the sense that there's nobody counting down and I've got to, I can't talk for an extra five minutes about something that's fascinating because I got to get to a commercial. And there are minimal ads as well. Uh, Apple iTunes is a good place, but you can also get this on your Amazon device. Hey, everybody, have a great day. We'll be back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.